Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Future in Space Hangout. This is your source of live space astronomy discussion and information about all things astronautical. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and today I'm thrilled that we're going to get a chance to be talking about the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is now scheduled to launch no later than the end of March 2021. Now, before I get started, I need to let everyone know that these Hangouts are supported and endorsed by the American Astronautical Society, an organization that is dedicated to advancing all things space, whether it's human spaceflight, robotic exploration, or satellite design and, and deployment. The AAS brings these Hangouts to you to help connect you with the world of the American Astronautical Advancement and uh, discoveries that, that we are always learning about every day. Okay, so let me bring up my panel here. Um, uh, my my co-host, Harley Thronson, that's usually with me, uh, couldn't be here today. So today I am joined by Dr. Laura Bet or by Laura Betts. Uh, she is a member of the Webb Telescope Communications Team at Goddard's, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Hi, Laura. Hi, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> good. It's good to have you here. It's good to see you again. And uh, we hung out way back when uh, I was still at the Institute, so it's cool that uh, that you're here and that we're getting to do this together. She's going to help me today with today's Hangout. She's going to be helping me watch the live, um, the live chats and, and ask questions of our guests today. Now, as I mentioned before, though, these Hangouts are live, so we invite you to interact with us. And you can do that in a couple of really good ways. Uh, the best way is the YouTube live chat window which is currently uh, going and buzzing away. I see Condor Boss there. And uh, you can also use the Deep Astronomy Discord server, uh, which is a gaming server that we, the gaming chat uh, device or client that uh, you can use, 20, it's open 24 seven. And the link to that is in the description box uh, of this Hangout. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, my guest today are Paul Geithner. For, uh, he is the Deputy Project Manager uh, technical, I guess there's a distinction there, uh, for the James Webb Space Telescope at, Goddard, at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and uh, Dr. Jonathan Gardner, who is the Deputy Science Project Scientist uh, for the James Webb Space Telescope, and he also serves as the Chief of the Laboratory for Observational Cosmology in the Astrophysics Science Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. So welcome, guys. Thank you for joining us in our Hangout. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> okay, so let's start... We are, a lot of us are very familiar with uh, the Hubble Space Telescope. It's been up there for well over 25 years now and giving us all kinds of great science discoveries, but it's time for a replacement. So, uh, 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 Jonathan, do you want to give us a little update on what JWST is hopefully going to teach us about the universe? Sure. Um, I would like to first say that it's not a replacement for Hubble. It's a successor. Did I say uh, replacement? So we would, uh, okay, you're right. I should yes, have said Yes, we would love to have both uh, <laughs> missions operating together and, and working together because they are a bit different. So the Webb is a bigger telescope than Hubble. It's six and a half meters in diameter versus 2.4 meters for Hubble. It is also infrared optimized and rather than uh, visible light and ultraviolet like Hubble is. So again, it would be great to have the two working together. Uh, the original idea for an infrared telescope was to look backwards in time using the cosmological redshift and looking at very distant galaxies to see what galaxies were like in the very early universe. But it also turns out that an infrared, a big infrared telescope is very good for studying exoplanets 
uh, the formation of stars and planets, objects in our own solar system, and so forth. So we're happy to um, to talk more about that, but that's the the design goals. Like Hubble, it's a general purpose observatory that can touch all aspects of astronomy. Can you comment much on the on how likely it is that there will be some overlap now with do you know for I guess between Hubble and JWST are they is Hubble as far as you know doing okay? Is it uh, is it pretty healthy? I mean I know you don't work with yeah. Hubble but directly but Yeah, Hubble is doing doing very well. Uh, all of the instruments continue to operate. Um, it's doing great science. There's highly competitive call for proposals every year. And uh, the, the one aspect of Hubble that um, is no longer being done is the servicing missions. So at this point, Hubble will continue to operate, and NASA will be happy to continue operating Hubble as long as everything works on the observatory. Uh, we know it's doing great science, and it will continue to do great science as long as everything works. So um, we really do hope to have uh, years of, of operations um, with both Webb and Hubble together. Right, and I think uh, I also work with Carol Christian quite a bit. She's the project scientist, or uh, one of the scientists at Hubble at the Institute, and she's been telling me that things are going great, uh, that it's still in really healthy condition. And if you think about it, back in 2009, when it was last serviced, it was basically given a brand new lease on life. I mean, it was basically completely refurbished. So we've got a lot of life, I think, left in Hubble, and fingers crossed that we can have some overlap. Because, you know, you you said, Jonathan, that JWST is primarily an infrared telescope, and it's that's by design because that's where the interesting stuff is in the early universe. And uh, and even Hubble at this point is mostly infrared, but it also has on it ultraviolet detectors, and that's something that um, uh, JWST does not have and will complement in the wavelength range. Uh, arena, I suppose, as far as being able to see things that JWST can't. So, yeah, Right. So Hubble works from uh, about 0.1 micron wavelength um, out to almost 2 microns wavelength, and uh, that covers ultraviolet, all of the visible light region, and a bit into the near-infrared. Webb picks up with gold-colored light. Um, that's our, our mirrors are coated with gold. And so they reflect golden light, they reflect uh, red light, and they reflect the infrared out from uh, 0.6 microns out to 28.5 microns in wavelength. So there's some overlap in the in red-colored light there's, and in the near-infrared, but Webb goes a lot further into the infrared and Hubble goes into the ultraviolet. And it, uh, astronomically, that's interesting because with these early first galaxies and stars that JWST is going to look at uh, are going to be brightest in those in, in those wavelengths. I want to ask you real quick about the science regarding exoplanet research because that's another big area that JWST is going to be involved in. What contributions to exoplanet uh, in life in the universe studies, is uh, JWST going to make specifically that say Kepler couldn't do or TESS can't do, uh, and, and 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 telescopes like that. So the big one big advantage is that uh, Webb is a much bigger telescope than Kepler or TESS or or even Hubble. So we get a lot more light. We can see things that are uh, more difficult to see. Basically, um, when 
the when a planet passes in front of its star, the light from the star goes through the atmosphere of the planet, and Webb can look at the constituents of the atmosphere. And in the infrared, there's a number of very important transitions, uh, such as water, methane, um, ozone, we'll be, we'll be looking for. These are, these are things that if we could see them in the atmospheres of Earth-like planets will tell us things like, is there liquid water on the surface? Do the, does the planet have oceans? Um, and possibly even uh, other, other things that we consider to be important for the presence of life on a planet. Um, so that's what Webb can give us that Hubble couldn't do. Now, you mentioned TESS. TESS launched recently. And the exciting thing about TESS and, and Webb is that TESS is a finder scope for Webb. TESS is going to find the best targets for Webb to look at in more detail. So TESS covers the whole sky, looks at um, the, the brightest stars, and looks for the little dip in light that comes when a planet is passing in front of the star, called a transit, and then Webb can come back and uh, characterize the atmosphere of those planets. Now, is, so the, the two were designed to work together. Is, uh, is JWST going to use NearSpec for that? That's the Near Infrared Spectrometer. Is that what it's going to use to, to analyze the light coming through the atmosphere? Uh, actually, all four of the Webb's instruments will contribute to this research. So NearSpec um, is important for doing the spectra. There's also a specialized mode in the Canadian instrument, which is called NEARIS, that is specifically designed for taking spectra of planet transits around very bright stars. And the bright stars are the ones that give us the best signal-to-noise in the, in the measurements. Uh, but also will be the ones that will be found by TESS. And then as we go into the longer wavelengths, um, more uh, molecular species, uh, that will be the, the realm of MIRI, the mid-infrared instrument. And then also um, NIRCAM has uh, contributions to this science as well. Okay. Uh, the um, the uh I just got a message that my internet connection is unstable, and now I'm freaking out. So uh, hopefully everything is, is settled down now. Uh, so, okay, with respect to uh, the science, I want to go, uh, and then I want to move on to some of the engineering uh, aspects of the mission. Um, you, had, you had written down some notes to me about the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Program, and there's also something about uh, the uh, another proposal call. Now, I guess my, my first my question is we J, the JWST mission already put together a um, uh, a call for proposals before the last delay was announced. Uh, is that still valid? This is this is for those of you who don't know. This is how time is allocated on these machines uh, on these uh, telescopes. People apply for time, they state their science case, and then they uh, the, it's decided on by a time allocation committee who gets what and how much time. That was done for the first time last year, right, for JWST? Right. So the, 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 the basic process for Hubble and for Webb is there will be a call for proposals uh, once a year that will allocate a year's worth of time. But one of the things that we wanted to do with Webb is pick uh, a few projects that we will do in the first 
two to three months of the mission that are specifically designed to show what kind of data and what kind of science Webb can do. And we've already had that call, which allocated about 500 hours of uh, telescope time out of the 8,600 of, of the first year that we call the Early Release Science Program. And um, you mentioned the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Program. That, that I'm very excited about because I'm actually part of that team. It's a, it's a very large team of, of about 100 astronomers um, working together on this project. And what this is going to do is point web at some of the deepest fields that Hubble has done uh, called the Candles Survey. So there's five fields around the sky, and it's going to, the, the Sears program is going to look at one of those and look for the most distant galaxies we can find that were already found, already uh, observed by Hubble, but not fully characterized with spectroscopy. Um, and this will then show the astronomers what we can do in this area, and we expect there will be even bigger projects uh, also done in the first year. We also have the um, plans from the instrument teams who all together have been given um, 4,000 hours out of the first year. And they put their plans in. Uh, there may be some uh, minor modifications uh, coming up, but then that still leaves um, half of the first year to be allocated to a call that we haven't done yet. Okay, that brings me to another question I had about time allocation. In Hubble, when you're given uh, time on Hubble, you're given it to uh, an observer in units of an orbit, which is about 90 minutes, the time it takes Hubble mm -hmm. to go around the Earth. Uh, what uh, what unit <laughs> of, like when someone applies for time, how is that allocated? Is it in hours, like you just said? Absolutely. It's done in wall clock hours, so uh, the project gets a certain number of hours and any sort of um, calibration or even pointing the telescope has to come out of that allocation. But we have um, just over 8,600 hours per year and that's what we give out. And um, so when an astronomer wins a proposal to do, say, a 45-hour project, uh, they will plan the observations to be as efficient as they can within the time that's allocated. Uh, yeah, I want to talk it's about... It's not necessarily contiguous. Um, they'll, if there are multiple targets, we'll then arrange them so that as the telescope points around the sky, uh, most of the time is spent doing the science observations and less time moving the telescope. Yeah, I can imagine you don't want to like point at one side of the sky and then go, oh, we got to go all the way to the other side of the sky now for the next observation. You want Absolutely, to try, you yeah. Want to try and keep a it lot as... of effort goes into making it efficient. <laughs> all right, well, getting back to Sears before we go, I just this, this really interests me because not only did the Hubble Space Telescope take the Hubble Deep Field, it took the ultra deep field, which was in a slightly different area of the sky, uh, and then it took the extreme deep field, and then CANDLES comes along, the CANDLES survey, which I forget what CANDLES stands for, but it was a survey that looked at other areas of the sky, took a deep field, and by deep field we mean they had Hubble stare at one tiny little part of the sky for the equivalent of days and build up these images yeah. of galaxies. Then came the uh, the Frontier Fields survey, which looked at six other areas of the sky and did the same thing. So we've looked 
at areas of the universe in a really deep way with Hubble. Now, with JWST, you're saying it's going to go back to the candles fields and use spectroscopy. Is that because they want to get better redshifts for those galaxies, or what What kind of uh, information will JWST give that candles and Hubble didn't? And then we'll move on to engineering, right. I promise. So it'll be, it'll be uh, redshifts for the faint objects that um, we, weren't, we haven't been able to measure redshifts for yet. It's uh, Spectre also tells you the chemical compositions, how old the galaxy is when we're seeing it. So we're looking for the most distant galaxies, and because of the light travel time, that means we're looking the furthest back in time to see how the galaxies formed and, and what's the process um, after they're first formed, how do they evolve over time, build up the heavy elements through, um, through the stellar processes and supernova, and uh, change from the little tiny pieces of galaxies that first formed, uh, those merge together over time and become big galaxies like the Milky Way that we live in today. Okay. So this is the, the whole process of the history of the universe that we're trying to put together. <laughs> Oh, that's and all. Webb can go further and um, get better data than than Hubble and well, different data also. Yeah, good, good. Well, you know, just small goals. That's all. Uh, just look at the yeah. whole entire universe. That's good. Okay, so uh, uh, Paul, I want to get you into this a little bit. You're the project manager, deputy project manager for JWST, and can you give us? So we know that the uh, we've heard about the delay. We know we know what's going on with uh, with the new schedule. Uh, can you comment a little bit about where we are now? in the uh, project itself. We know that the spacecraft is at Northrop Grumman in Redondo Beach. Uh, can you give us a status on what's happening now there? Sure. So, you know, at the top level, we're in the end game. We're at the final assembly and testing stage of this thing after, geez, 22 years now of working on it when it started as twinkles in the eye and I then drawings on, you know, sketches on view graphs. So, the observatory is basically in two halves right now. Um, the uh, telescope half, which has all the instruments in it as well, you know, that's done being built. It was tested last uh, year for in, during a hundred day vacuum test with Hurricane Harvey right in the middle of it. That was a Johnson, was, right? And that was a Johnson. Yeah, yeah we 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 spent many years upgrading a, a relic of the Apollo era, a giant vacuum chamber. Um, and turned it into the world's premier cryogenic optical test facility. And uh, that test, 100-day test, was um, was a complete success. And so we know the telescope works, and we know we can phase it, you know, because its its main mirror is made of 18 segments. It's not one piece, so we have to get all those pieces lined up so they act like one mirror. Um, we know the instruments work. Uh, so that's great. It's an amazing achievement. It's one of the greatest engineering achievements um, arguably the, uh, ever at NASA or, or almost anywhere, really, get that, that big cryogenic deployable space telescope uh, tested. Um, the, the other half, and, and then early this year, we shipped it to Northrop Grumman for its final assembly with the other half of the observatory, which is the spacecraft bus and the sun shield. And, of course, the sun shield is like the size of a tennis court. It's five layers of very thin. Go ahead and hold up your, you got, you've got a teaching, yep. uh, you've got a teaching device there. Uh, I do. <laughs> okay. So here's web. And, uh, so th this, uh, this is what it looks like. And, um, the part that 
we got done, we got built and tested last year and delivered to California for final assembly is this part here. You see the deployed telescope, all the, the, the four cameras and spectrographs are on the back in this black box. This whole thing um, is done and uh, waiting for assembly with this part. So this part is the spacecraft bus and the sun shield. And of course, this is in its deployed state. So this is what's being um, going into final assembly now is the sun shield and the bus is basically built. We're putting it just the last few bits of assembly together. And then we're putting it through a test campaign similar to what this part went through before we put these two together later next year and then do some final tests on the whole thing as one piece as one observatory and then ship it to the launch site and get it launched. Now, when it was in the chamber a, the upper part there, uh, in, yes. in when it was in chamber a at Johnson, did you uh, unfold the mirror segment part two, or did you just have the mirrors fully deployed and then you did the phase adjustments? I got a video for that and I'll show in a minute folks, but uh, yeah, it did was you do it all. Fully, yep. It was fully deployed. Okay. So, um, we did, uh, we did have it in the stowed condition and put before we sent it to Texas and, uh, we had it in its stowed condition, like it's going to be for, for launch, and put it through mechanical environmental testing to, in two parts. We did a, a, mechanical, a, uh, a mechanical shake part where we put on a set of giant uh, electromagnetic shakers and shook it um, to levels that are higher than it will see when it actually rides to space. And that, that's for two reasons, to make sure it can survive the ride to space, but it's also workmanship check to make sure all the screws are tightened correctly and that sort of thing. And then we put it through an acoustics test because we can't really effectively shake the payload uh, through the, the whole range of mechanical frequencies. So up to about 100 hertz, we can shake it on a shaker, but above that, you're talking, you know, middle you're talking some of the bass notes on the piano and on up so that's when we go to acoustics testing and we stick in the big chamber um with very thick big concrete chamber with thick walls and uh shout at it very loudly uh, <laughs> and and that simulates the acoustic environment of the launch and that's also workmanship check and uh, different things behave differently to the different mechanical vibrations but anyway we put it through its mechanical testing and then deployed it to make sure it would deploy afterwards and then we shoved it into the vacuum chamber in its deployed state, which is its operational state. And then we're able to phase the mirrors and um, pass light through the whole system. Okay. And that's, that, that brings me to the, to the part where uh, and now we're, so the upper area with the optical tube assembly and the, and the instruments that's that passed just fine at Johnson. Now we're looking on that lower area, which is the sun shield area, the momentum flap and all yep. the other things that are hanging down below that. Uh, yep. is the part that's currently being tested at Northrop, and that's the part where a lot of a lot of uh, issues came up. I am putting it. I know I'm understating it when I say most of us are freaking out about once it gets launched up there. How sure are we yes. that this thing is going to <laughs> unfold the way it was designed to do? Now, in the press conference where we talked about the delays and the in the in the stuff, one of the things that you guys mentioned that I want to clear up because I don't fully understand it. Well, part of the reason for the delay and for the length that it is currently set at is so that the mission, and as project manager, deputy project manager, you can maybe help define this, you needed to get to the 70% confidence level of the mission. Right. right. What does that mean exactly? 
that's that's just a programmatic number. That's not like a reliability of the spacecraft number. Right. That has that, a that has a definition. That means something, right? With respect to project yeah. management. Okay. Right, right. It, it's it's purely project management. It's not like oh, the thing's got a seventy percent chance of working or not. No, it was that was seventy percent um, chance of uh, us making the cost and schedule um, of the the replan. Um, you know, we we had a delay because of uh, really two things. There were some there were some problems we found during during assembly that had to get fixed, and then. There was just it's taking longer to uh, put the sun shield together and test it, and that's mainly because it's a first time thing. We've nobody's ever built anything quite like this before, and uh, the sun shield is complicated. So, um, you know, the main thing is we're doing it right, but we needed more time. And uh, uh, in the programmatic land, we were like, well, what should be our new launch date? What's a realistic schedule to put together? Uh, and what, what are we, what are we confident in? You know, if you Monte Carlo a whole bunch of different things that could go wrong and you, uh, put them together, where's our 70%, you know, confidence or likelihood that we'll launch by a certain time or before. And, and that's what that 70% confidence means. It's purely programmatic that tells us, oh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get launched by, you know, late 2020 or early 2021. Okay. What, uh, any so the good news in all of this is that uh you know everything that was found is fixable and it's being worked on now there's no there's no mission uh you know enders here so that's really great news but um the uh the the main thing is we've just got to wait a little bit longer um so what you've already talked a little bit about what tests have been done so far um is are we are we going to finish the the sun shield testing and then merge the two together what's next i guess is Yes. Let's talk about that. So what's next is we're, uh, we're, we're putting, uh, we're finishing our last few changes to the SunShield system. And uh, before the year is out, we'll actually be putting it through vibration and acoustics testing, like we did with the telescope, the optical part. Then it goes into thermal vac testing. So it goes in a big vacuum chamber um, and we put it through the uh, in a vacuum, the thermal uh, extremes that it's going to see, and we run the spacecraft bus. And the bus has all the eyes and ears of the telescope, of the observatory, basically. You know, the telescope and instrument parts are doing the science, but the thing that's flying the observatory is the spacecraft bus. And so it's got the navigation and guidance and control and communications and the you know, the computers and the memory storage and the antenna and the power system, you know, the solar array. So that's the spacecraft bus. And um, uh, we put that through its full paces um, electrically and software wise. You know, we're trying out all our flight software. We're running all our electrical systems in a vacuum chamber for about a month and a half. And that's next, that's next spring to summer. And then we finally get the two halves together they finally get together mechanically and electrically um, uh, next fall. Right. And, and then we'll put them through one more set of uh, those mechanical environments I described, um, which is basically to make sure all the interfaces, which are the only new thing at that part that hasn't been tested, are good. And then we'll fold it up, um, have it all folded up, 
put it in a nice shipping container, really nice shipping container. Yeah, I've seen it. It's really cool. (laughs) And and, uh, and then it goes to uh, South America for launch by our European partners. Yeah, I definitely. We got a really good question from Adam Synergy for you. Hey, Adam. (laughs) Has the process of integrating and testing the parts for web been difficult? Uh, yes, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, putting any spacecraft together is hard, especially a one of a kind, you know, a lot of what NASA does are, are one of a kind spacecraft, you know, we're not building, um, uh, you know, uh, 2 million Ford Tauruses, well, Ford's not building Tauruses anymore, but you know what I mean? We're not building <laughs> multiple kinds of something we're building. We're usually building one of a kind new things that push the envelope in not just scientific ways, but engineering ways, because the science drives the engineering. And if we want to do new science, we typically have to build new tools and expand the envelope of engineering to do it. And so, yeah, it's been it's been difficult. But, um, you know, the thing that makes this doable and gives us confidence that that the thing is going to work is uh, tried and true processes of building spacecraft for for 60 years now. You know, uh, this is something that people know how to do, um, how to, uh, put stuff together, how to, uh, you know, we qualify things, for example, what does that mean? Well, before we say it's okay to use in space, we, we test it, uh, very rigorously, um, more in a way that more than it's ever going to see in the actual space environment or the launch environment. And, um, and we qualify it. We, we, we prove that something's going to work. And then, then we can use it. Um, it's it's got the check mark, the good housekeeping seal of approval to use in space. And then, and a lot of our engineering processes are, you know, how do we do the testing? How do we do designs? How do we review the designs to make sure they're good? Um, we have independent reviews. We have different people check each other. So those kinds of processes have been developed through the School of Hard Knocks um, over 60 years of the space program. Um, you know, they apply to any spacecraft we put together and, and, and that gives us conf- that gives us confidence that, you know, this thing's going to work, um, as it's designed and as expected. And once in a while we do find that, uh, something that we're testing doesn't work and then we have to open it up and fix it and then do, we do the test. Uh, it doesn't happen often because things are done pretty well, but once in a while we find something like that. Yep. And that's also part of the process of testing. All right, John. And John, sorry. Go ahead. Attorney. No, by all means, uh, go, Laura. Raj Luthra also has a good question for John. Uh, how far back in the universe time will Webb be able to see? Uh, and what's the resolution? Do you have any backup plans if something weren't to work? Okay, so uh, we will be looking back towards the Big Bang, um, which was 13.8 billion years ago, and we hope to see the first galaxies forming at around 200 to 400 million years after the Big Bang. Uh, we can't, we won't, we don't expect to see further than that because we don't expect there to be anything before the first galaxies except the, uh, the gas and the, the matter and energy that was in the Big Bang itself. So that's, that's where we hope to see. Um, that's based on theoretical models of when the first galaxies did form. And with Hubble, we can see back to uh, about a billion years after the Big Bang, or maybe a little bit further uh, with 
um, with somewhat ambiguous evidence um, for being able to see a little bit further with Hubble. But um, it, it doesn't sound like it's that much more when, you, when you're looking um, that Hubble can see back 13 billion years and Webb will see maybe 13.4 uh, or 13.6. But what's important is how close we can see to the Big Bang and that we are hoping to see the first galaxies that formed. And the first stars, if I'm not mistaken. And the right. first stars in the first galaxies. The first yeah. stars <laughs> ever to shine in the universe. Yeah. That's a big deal. That's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, and Laura, Laura, the um, just to add to John, uh, we've actually seen the the uh, echo of the Big Bang. It's it's redshifted so much by the expansion of the cosmos that it shows up not as infrared light, but as even longer wavelengths as as microwave radiation. But between the the that that echo of the Big Bang that we see that's only 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background, and a few hundred million years after the Big Bang when the first luminous objects formed in the universe, that dark ages, you know, we designed Webb not to be a microwave telescope and look, go all the way backward like John said. We're looking for a specific epoch, the epoch of the very first stars and galaxies and see how you know see, detect th that very first light of luminosity in the universe and see those first things and understand how they formed and that's nobody's ever been to that epic of space time uh before and that's what's so so cool about web but for me you know as a i'm an engineer i'm not a scientist but but i just think it's so cool that we're going to, we're literally exploring unexplored territory in space time and wow. you know we're going to get you know we're going to get surprised and it's going to be it's going to be mind-blowing. So, Very good. Uh, one Plot has a really good question. Uh, or did you have any others, Laura, that you wanted to read? I just, I personally am interested in knowing what you both want to, to see the most. Good question. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Well, so I've been part of this project for uh, almost 20 years now, and I'm really excited by what I've been talking about, finding the first galaxies. Uh, that was the research I did um, back in the 1990s for my PhD and afterwards, and um, it's all just been aimed at these very deep observations, the longest exposures we can do with Webb, going out to uh, the beginning, the beginnings of stars and galaxies and planets and and the whole hit. As I said before, the whole history of our universe. That's what excites me about this. Great. Uh, okay. Well, one plot has a good question that goes back to our discussion on uh, TESS. Now, TESS is designed to go up for two years. It's going to look at the entire sky with the exception of a couple of spots uh, in the north and south uh, of the region that it's designed to look at. Uh, and But because of the delay, will the data from TESS, as being a finder scope like you talked about, Jonathan, uh, going to still work? Uh, because I think TESS will be done, won't it, by the time uh, JWC launches? Well, so TESS has a prime mission, and we hope that it will extend after that prime mission um, as long as it keeps working. Uh, but absolutely, the, the data will still be good. It's going to find the best targets for Webb to look at. And so it's good that Webb is coming after, after TESS's missions, because um, after TESS's discoveries, uh, because those, um, those Planets will still be going around their stars, and they'll still have atmospheres for Webb to study. And so it's going to be um, still very 
very useful. Yeah, yeah. The, the data are still going to be there. It's not going to go away. Yeah. And and so the 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 the, the candidate objects for JWST are still going to be able to be used from the archives. So, um, okay. So I just want to I want to talk about the next phase of the mission after Northrop uh, after leaving California. But I want to leave before I do. I just have a sort of a philosophic not philosophical but a budgetary question regarding to the delay because of the cost overruns. Uh, that, that currently have happened. Um, will this affect other missions coming down the pike that NASA's trying to do, or is it separated because of contingent? There's a thing called budget contingencies, and, and you guys have all of that, but is there going to be money that has to be taken from other projects? So that is actually subject to the political process and will be up to Congress. So Webb is a line item in the budget, which means that the, um, the executive branch, NASA, and the, ultimately the president's proposed budget will propose an amount of money each year for uh, Webb, and the, the new budget will include um, what we need out of this recent replan for the next few years. Um, but then it goes to Congress, and Congress gets to decide whether – uh, Web will get the money that we need or whether we're going to end up slowing down because we don't get the money. But I should say that uh, the uh, both the White House, NASA, and um, Congress have been very, very supportive of Web. So the impact on other future missions or, or other planned missions then also is up to that political process. Uh, NASA will, will be putting together a proposed budget but then that budget goes to Congress, and Congress can decide, um, do, they, do they want to uh, keep everything going, which might take more money, or um, make the hard choices between different projects? I see. Okay. Uh, uh, Leo, Leo uh, Peron, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this. Uh, do you take? Oh, I want to get to the commissioning part and the schedule and the planning schedule in just a minute. But the very and we'll get to that. But the very next thing I want to talk about is that we've got so the the vibration testing, the acoustics testing has been done on both halves of the spacecraft. You've put both halves together and then you've put them in a special shipping container and then you put that shipping container on a barge. And this is something most that I, a lot of people don't talk about. But we've got to move this thing from California <laughs> all the way down to the eastern uh, side of South America. Who wants to talk about that process and, and what's being done to get ready for that? Because I'm fascinated to learn about what's going to happen there. Yeah, sure. Sure, I can talk about that, Tony. So, so uh, yeah, that's what happens. So once we're done testing, putting it together, testing it, and it's ready to launch, we uh, will put it in a big trailer um, and actually drive it from Northrop in Redondo Beach to Long Beach. Um, we'll do it in the dark of night or wee hours of the morning um, with police escort and lots of security, um, which is the same way we got the telescope from Texas to um, the telescope half from Texas to Northrop. And um, we'll put it on a really nice ship. Um, they're, they're most it's not a barge, paid- it's a ship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always think heard barge. Okay. Barge, the, the ship captain might take offense. But it's actually yeah. <laughs> the, the scout. No, but it, it, it's a nice, scout. it's a nice ship. Um, 
there are a couple of ships that are basically dedicated to taking rocket parts and payloads to um, the Guyana Space Center, which is where we're launching from in French Guiana and nor the northern coast of South America. And, um, you know, they're really, they're really good at doing this and they know how to do it. And we'll have, um, you know, we'll have security with us. So, how but yeah, we will sail, we'll sail from Long Beach down the coast of uh, California and Central America. We'll go through the Panama Canal. We'll come out the other side and we will pull into the, the port at the space center itself and unload the drive the uh drive the shipping container right off the ship we'll actually be in in the interior of the ship very clean you could eat fried eggs off of the deck of this thing on the inside it's 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 hospital clean it's really nice um the uh are you gonna ride with it just to make sure it gets there all right um personally me no <laughs> but we have a yeah i'd like to actually but no we have a we have a we have a, a crew uh, specifically identified to go with it who will take care of the um the container which which provides um even though we're inside an environmentally controlled um deck of the ship the 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 shipping container itself is uh provides a very clean temperature humidity controlled environment for the observatory on the inside and you know we'll have people traveling with small number of people traveling with the shipping container to basically your care and feeding of the shipping container with the precious cargo inside and um uh, yeah, so that's the voyage is um, is uh, it's a very yeah it's a very tight ship. <laughs> well, let me just put it out there, guys. I'll just put it out there. I'm happy to volunteer in any way I can to go <laughs> to because I will. I want it to get there as bad as you do, and I will. I will get the security clearance, whatever it takes. I'm happy to go along too. So we'll just put you on that put, long list. <laughs> put it out there and the launch if there's any way. <laughs> well, let's talk about okay. So once it gets to French Guiana, it's going on. And uh, an ESA uh, Ariane 5 rocket. Now, you also have one of those two, Paula, model, a scale model, I think, uh, of yes. one of those versus yes. it, that matches with the JWST, right? Let me, let me make you Yeah, I sure do. Okay. Um, these are almost the same scale. So okay. um, here's an Ariane 5 uh, model, and here's a deployed to, in its operational state, James Webb Space Telescope Observatory. Now, the payload fairing for the rocket is what you see right here. This is the same scale, right? They're, they're almost exactly the same scale, <laughs> so these are really handy. So um, you'll notice that this <laughs> doesn't really uh, fit into that in this configuration. <laughs> so, you know, one of the engineering challenges of Webb was um, uh, building it so we could fold it up so that it would this uh, folded up actually fits into this nose cone. Um, you know, Webb's extraordinarily difficult as an engineering, uh, from an engineering perspective. I mean, the science says we need a really big infrared telescope. Infrared means it has to be cold because infrared light is basically heat radiation. We don't see it with our eyes, but you feel it as heat. So if we want a big infrared telescope to be sensitive, uh, it has to be super cold. So that's why it looks like it does. It's got a telescope on one side that doesn't have a tube around it and a big tennis court sized umbrella five layer umbrella basically and we always keep the sun on this side and this side is always in the shade and it will get down to temperatures of a few tens of degrees above absolute zero it's the point to where the thermal background the infrared emission of the telescope itself 
isn't isn't a factor in its sensitivity. Um, and so, but it's it had to be so big to be to collect enough light to be sensitive enough and have the resolution it needs to see the very first stars and galaxies that John wants to see. Um, it has to be at least six and a half meters in diameter for the main mirror because size matters when it comes to a telescope. And so um, to fit that into the rocket, we had to design it to um, fold it up. And hence, that's why it's it's got 178 release devices that the pins that basically hold it together for launch. And then we fire in sequence over a three week period to get it to um, to get it to unfold and get to the condition you see in my model. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Tony G. I see your uh, your question there, and I will get to it because I have a question about that as well. So I'll make sure it gets asked. Uh, the uh, the the last thing about the the, the launch vehicle because that we're, 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 it's going to be twenty twenty one now before the launch happens. ESA has plans to. Uh, 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 replace the Ariane 5 which is what was being which is the launch vehicle for JWST with the Ariane 6 how is that how is that uh is that affecting the mission at all or are is the Ariane 5 going to be around or are you guys going to try and use the Ariane 6 um it, it doesn't affect us at all so short answer uh the Ariane 5 is still going to be around um and uh um so it's really not an effect um yeah Ariane 6 is coming down the pike but um ESA is still going to be flying Ariane fives even beyond our new launch date. And, um, uh, well, it really doesn't affect us. We'll still be flying on Ariane five. and It's going to be fine. Okay, good. Now the, with the time I have left, I just want to talk about the future a little bit because everybody knows that building JWST was a big deal. Things had to be invented. Things that weren't in existence in humanity's technological arsenal had to be put there before JWST could even do the science. Uh, this is a large telescope. A lot of very difficult things had to come together. And has been very uh, amazing in that regard, but it's also been very clear about how hard this was. Has the experience with JWST affected how NASA looks at future large telescope missions? I'm thinking particularly of things like uh, what used to be called um, uh, Atlas, which is now called uh, Louvoir, which is one of the possible <coughs> candidates for a future uh, uh, space telescope past Webb. This is going to be even bigger. It's going to be 8 to 16 meters in diameter. Um, has NASA maybe thought, well, maybe these gigantic one-shot telescopes are a little bit too hard? Or what's the thinking? with, with And how do you think that's going to affect future ones? And Tony G's question was specifically about the HDST uh, that is being projected for the 2030s. So... Um, from its very beginning, NASA doesn't do things that are easy. NASA does things that are hard. That was uh, part of what John F. Kennedy said when he talked about um, sending people to the moon. Uh, so NASA is not afraid of big telescopes um, or big projects. Uh, but the process for deciding what goes next is actually up to the National Academy of Sciences, which is just starting a a couple-year process to do what's called a decadal survey. So right now, NASA's studying four big concepts for future telescopes, and the National Academy of Sciences decadal survey will prioritize that uh, those concepts and choose, basically choose a winner, just like um, 
the James Webb Space Telescope was selected in the 2000 Decadal Survey as NASA's top priority, and the WFIRST mission was selected in the 2010 Decadal Survey for uh, the, the big mission that comes after Webb. So those four missions are um, LUVOIR, which is a uh, very large space telescope designed to do both exoplanets and also general astronomy. Um, there's something called HABEX, which is a slightly smaller exoplanet mission, so they can kind of choose their size um, uh, with a couple of different concepts. And then there's also an X-ray mission called LYNX and a uh, far infrared mission called the Origin Space Telescope. So it's, it's up to the nation's astronomers um, and scientists uh, through the National Academy of Sciences to decide what, to make a recommendation to NASA as to what should be the next big thing coming. And um, there are concepts on, on the table for really big things like Louvoir, um, and there are missions that are a little bit more modest. Um, like HABEX or even what's called probes, which would be even smaller. So this is, um, this is an exciting time in planning, uh, as since we get um, every 10 years, we get a decadal survey. Uh, the process of doing the decadal survey um, involves uh, more than 100 scientists directly on the panels, and then they solicit input from the community both written through white papers and also traveling around and having meetings and, and just letting people participate in that. So that's, uh, that's what's going to determine the future for NASA. And then, of course, there's also the, um, the political decision on what NASA's budget should be. Yeah, I want to remind everybody, we have done Hangouts on Future in Space on all of those projects that uh, Jonathan just talked about, all the way from uh, Louvoir to, to Habex and, and all the others. that we. So there's Hangouts on all of those where we've talked to them about what their plans are. The decisions are coming up, I think, next year uh, on which one is going to make it. And so that's going to be exciting uh, to learn about as well. Uh, and But it sounds like, John, that NASA, these big observatories, sure, we'll do it again. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Raj Luther has a really good question, and then I'm going to see if, uh, Laura, if you've got any questions. Uh, Raj Luther, will universities, uh, will universities, colleges, and schools have access to JWST data? Where, who gets access to the data? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, as we mentioned before, uh, astronomers at universities, colleges, um, from around the world, can write their proposals for what they want Webb to point at and what sort of data they want to, to take. Uh, when those observations are made, um, some of them uh, go to the astronomers who wrote the proposals, but there are some classes of observations which go directly into the archive and are available for anybody, including the early release science programs that uh, we talked about earlier. All of those data go immediately into the archive and anybody, either the proposers, other scientists at other universities, um, colleges and their undergraduate students can all get access to, to the data. And then even the data that goes specifically to the proposers uh, go into the archive and are made public after a year, a year after they're taken. So. 
yes, everybody who um, wants to get the software tools and play with the data can do so and um, make the scientific discoveries um, and report those. In addition, we will have, just like with Hubble, we will have um, the images processed and um, put on the web with a description of the scientific results um, through periodic press releases. And with Hubble, I think uh, they put out 20 to 30 per year new results with the pictures that Hubble took and the um, explanation of the discoveries written by the scientists. Um, so that's a way for the general public to appreciate um, the the science results and the and the beautiful pictures that are going to come from Web, just like with Hubble. Yeah, that'd be with I think Ray Villard and those guys from the institute do a great job with those. But uh, yeah. if you do want the data, folks, you need to learn about something called MAST, the Mikulski Archive for Space Telescopes. That's where a lot of that, that's where all Hubble data goes. That's where Kepler data sits. That's where test data is going. Uh, and you need to learn about that archive if you want to get at it yourselves, uh, because that's where it's all going, and and it will be available to to people that after embargoes and and some of them uh, the the early release program we talked about earlier john that is that analogous to with hubble time with hubble data hubble time i should say 20 percent of it is something called director's discretionary time where the director of the institute can decide what to do with that is there is that a similar thing or will jwst have something like that because that's how the hubble the hubble deep field initially got taken it yeah. used discretionary time. Yeah, absolutely. That that um, early release science program did come out of the director's discretionary time. Uh, the director of the institute, Ken, Dr. Ken Sembach, um, decided he wanted to do an early program, so he put 500 hours of this discretionary time. But he did open it up for competition, so the 11 teams that were selected um, were selected through a peer-reviewed competition to do the um, to do the science, and it is a, a broad range of science. I talked about the the Sears program, which is um, which I'm a part of, but there are two exoplanet projects, early release projects. There's one on populations of stars and galaxies. There's one on Jupiter that will be studying the Jupiter system and and Jupiter's moons. Um, a couple that will be using gravitational lensing to look at things that are even too faint for Webb to see and use clusters of galaxies as a cosmic telescope to magnify the light. Um, so it's, it is really exciting science and, and um, was designed from the beginning to demonstrate be kind of a, a, a early taste of, of the kinds of results that will come through the lifetime of, of the JWST mission. I'm, I can't believe I've only got five minutes left. I really okay. Real, I, can we talk about commissioning uh, after the launch? Uh, it's all going to go great because it has to, and it will. And we're up in space now. Then we right. start to we leave the Ariane five rocket. We go out toward the L two point, which is a million and a half kilometers away, and it's going to sit at its final resting place. It's got to unfold, Jonathan or uh, uh, Paul. How long right. is it going to take to unfold? Uh, roughly two to three weeks. Um, you know, the rocket flight is about 26 minutes. Uh, 35 minutes later, the sun solar array comes out. So we go power positive. We start making electricity from sunlight and we we're, we don't need our battery anymore. Uh, antenna comes out a little while, a few hours later, the high gain antenna. 
um, so that we can we'll eventually get science data down through that. And then it's two to three weeks of um, of uh, deployments. Um, in fact, by the time the solar array and the and main antenna come out, uh, we will have passed the moon. Um, we'll be a quarter of our, the way to the Lagrange point uh, that we're heading to. And uh, so, yeah, the next two to three weeks, it's all sun shield and telescope deployments. And how soon um, after deployment? Uh, well, let me ask you this. How long will it take to get to L2? Ah, so it, it takes uh, it, it takes about a month to get to L2. It'll be like 29 days when we insert into our our spot there. Um, we're basically, uh, the, the rocket gives us just enough power so it's like coasting up a hill and having exactly the right amount of thrust so that you coast, you pedal like crazy at the bottom of the hill, stop pedaling, and you get up to the top of the hill and you have just enough so that when you get to the top, you stop. I didn't and know that. So it's like you're coasting and you're, okay, yeah. you're there. <laughs> you yeah, just stop. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like less than a day to get past the moon, but and you're a quarter of the way there. But then the rest of the month is is coasting to the top. Ah, so um, so then we're we're pretty much we're basically fully deployed when we get to L two. But then there's basically five more months of commissioning stuff. So uh, remember, we're an infrared telescope, so the the shady side, the instruments in the cool telescope have to get cold. So it's going to take a long time to cool down. We're going to manage that cool down so that things cool down at the right rate and certain things cool down first and others, because, you know, there's still like water vapor and uh, captured in, in the composite materials and the plastic that make up this thing. So we want that to outgas to the vacuum of space and not turn into ice on detectors, for example, or on mirror surfaces. So, so we have a managed cool down that takes months. Um, we start, uh, we start phasing the telescope. We got to get all the, the mirror segments lined up and there's a process for that. So, um, and then we'll be turning the instruments on and getting them calibrated. And once everything's at thermal equilibrium and we got all the mirrors lined up and we got the instruments calibrated, then that's, that's basically after six months and, and there'll be some, uh, John can talk to the early release observations, but there'll be certain observations that are picked just for, you know, sort of the, the coming out party of, um, JWST its debut. Uh, there'll be, um, certain science observations that will be, visually and scientifically pretty cool. So hopefully it'll make it above the fold of the New York Times and things like that. Yeah, and that uh, six months image. after launch, then and that's when the science first, and then it becomes a science operating, an, an operational science tool and start seeing some really neat science. So you haven't, you haven't decided yet what the first one's gonna be, the first object. Uh, I'm not no, sure, I mean, John can speak better to that, yeah. Yeah, there was there was a committee that's working on it, but we haven't chosen yet. Okay, so I think uh, Leo, that goes to your uh, that goes to your uh, question. So just wanted to ask that, uh, Laura. We're ran, we're out of time, but uh, did, did, is there anything that you could see that we could ask? Why build an origami telescope versus just have a bigger rocket? That's the question we've gotten a couple times now. It would it would actually cost more, and then it would be a rocket with like one use or maybe it'll have another use for but but you know something like at last or the next bigger batter aperture telescope is going to need you know you, you just reach a physical limit uh maybe a 10 meter fairing is the most that's practical um and actually launch a rocket off of earth given our gravity and our atmosphere so at some point you've either got to um build a one-piece origami telescope like we've got or at some point maybe you send it up in 
in chunks and then you assemble it or self assembles in space because uh, as you have to go for bigger and bigger apertures to do certain kinds of science, um, you know, you're, you're up against the wall and we're, we're, we're kind of there with, with web. It's hard to build a bigger telescope as a one piece thing that unfolds in space. Okay. Anything else, Laura? No, I think that covers it. All right. Well, I got to I got to cut it off here, folks, because I would need to be respectful of my guest's time. We have been. I want to thank I want to thank you both so much. My guests today were Paul Geithner, the deputy project manager for JWST. Also, Dr. Jonathan Gardner, he's the deputy senior project scientist uh, for JWST. Also with me was Laura Betts, who is a member of the JWST communications team. Thank you, Laura. I hope I really appreciated your help. I hope you'll come back and help me out some more. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Thanks for answering all these great questions, guys. Yeah, and, and thanks for um, thank you guys for for watching live. What next week in the Astro Coffee Hangout? I'll be back with Carol Christian, where we will be talking with scientists who are looking at Mars and decide and try. And who, new paper has come out uh, that is discussing was Mars warmer with water and was it closer to the sun? Uh, we're going to be talking about those results next week, so we hope you'll join us next Thursday. Also on Tuesday, we have Telescope Talk Hangout. Uh, for amateur astronomers. That'll be on Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern time. So we hope you guys will see it. On behalf of my guests and Laura Betts, I want to thank you so much for uh, your time and watching this. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up. Okay, that's it. We're done.